Well, last week we moved into the second half of Romans chapter 7 that is one of the, not just the most difficult passages in the book of Romans, it's one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible, but I hope that you wouldn't, because of that, say, ah, let's just skip that. It's controversial, it's confusing, we're not altogether sure what's going on there. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that with any part of the Bible. There's reasons God gave us everything he gave us, and it's worth studying, it's worth digging There's some things, let me put it to you this way. There's some things in the Bible that you can get real quick, like raking your yard. You know, when you rake your yard and you rake leaves, that's, you might not enjoy it, but that's not that hard. There's right on the surface and you're just scooping them into a pile. It's much harder, if you know anything about northern Kentucky, when you got to dig a hole to plant a tree. You start digging through that clay and that rock and all that, very, very hard And yet, you're doing something more significant with more significant in results of a tree that's planted. The scriptures are the same way. There's some truths that are right on the surface, like raking leaves. There's some others that you got to dig. You got to work. You got to think. You got to pray. But oh, there's some truth that's so worth digging for. That passage is one of those places. You won't rake your way on the surface through this and get what you need to get. You'll have to dig. You'll have to think. You'll have to study. You'll have to pray. But it is so worth it. Because I believe this passage, Romans 7, 14 to 25, Romans 7, 14 to 25, has tremendous implications tucked down into it that will shape the way you fight or do not fight sin in your life. Romans 7 to 14 to 25 describes the agony and the struggle of a believer, what a believer faces now as he or she tries to resist and fight against the sin that still remains in our life. Remember, Romans chapter 6 assures us gloriously, sin does not reign in your life. It's not king anymore. It doesn't own you. But Romans 7 is telling us something equally important. It still remains. Though it does not rain, it remains. And so you better know what to do with it. A, you better just be aware that it still remains. Then secondly, you better have a game plan and know, how do I go after this? How do I fight the sin that still remains in my life? How should you fight the sin that remains? And what do you need to know about your enemy? And do you have a battle plan? I want to give you from this passage today three facts about the fight. And these facts I I took from the excellent book that I waved around last week. Chris Lungard has a book called The Enemy Within where he unpacks Romans 6 and 7 and talks about this indwelling sin that yet remains that we have to do battle with. Before you ever begin to recognize forces outside of you that are coming against you, you better be alert, heads up, to the indwelling sin that remains Straight talk about the power and defeat of sin. And there's so much more in here than what I'm going to share today. But I've drawn some of the information today in my sermon from this book. And there's more of these in the Resource Center. If you'd like to get one and say, I want to think some more about that. I want to dig a little more. I want to chew on that and get a battle plan in place. I want to acknowledge that I got a lot of material today from his book. But now, let's turn to the most important book, Bible. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading again in verse 14. And I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. Romans 7 verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. 
For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is good. But now, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh. How much good dwells there? Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how? How to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law. I see another law in my members warring. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. From these verses, verse 14 to 25, I want to show you what I think are are three facts about the fight. The fight that you're in. Three facts about the fight. Here's the first. Number one, this battle you're facing is inescapable. This battle that you are facing is inescapable. You can't run from it. You can't avoid it. You can't declare yourself neutral and just opt out of it. You're in it. Like it or not, by virtue of being born a human being descended from Adam. Our first father who sinned in the garden. And Romans 5, was a few few months back, Romans 5 tells us when Adam sinned, we sinned. And so death spread to all men and sin spread to all men. You don't have to sign up to be a sinner. You don't have to watch a little kid reach 18 months and think, I think that was actually a willful, defiant moment right there. Now she's a sinner. They're born sinners. By nature of the fact that you're descended from Adam, you're in this fight, like it or not. It's inescapable. You're in it by virtue of being a human being. You can't get away from the fight. Let me put it to you this way. You can't get away from the fight because you can't get away from you. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In in Romans 7, you can see it right there in the verses. Look at your Bible again, where you can see it in verse 17, 20, 21, 23. That it's inescapable. Look at verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells. Where? In me. Verse 20. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells. Where? In me. And verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In verse 23. But I see another law Where's this law he sees? Where's it located? In, in my members, warring against the law of my mind. But now let me ask you about verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. I find then a law. Or this word has been used a lot. And some weeks back when we were writing the first six verses, I said, now what is law? 
He is using this word law now differently than he was using in the first six verses of Romans chapter 7. He is not talking about God's written Ten Commandments. He's not talking about a written down list of anything. In verse 21 of Romans 7, Paul is using the word law as a metaphor. As a way of indicating something that is normative and universal. Like gravity. Something that's normative and universal. He's one, you could say, you could translate right there, it is a universal, universal principle, would be another way to say it. I find then a universal principle. Well, the question comes in then, what? What is the universal principle that Paul is wanting us to understand? What is normative and universal and true still about even believers? Christians who've been set free from the reign and dominion of sin. It no longer reigns. It no longer wears the crown and is king. It no longer sits on the throne of your heart and life. But is it gone altogether? Don't make that mistake, he's saying. There's a universal principle, a normative axiom that is still true, that the law of sin... Sin still has some power in the life of believers and is constantly working to press us into its mold. That's why our biggest problem, if you could begin to get a hold of this, start with yourself. The only reason our flesh responds so readily and quickly to the cries of the world around us with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The only reason we step into the snare so often of our enemy Satan who goes about as a roaring lion is because we already have this indwelling sin that's at work with our own sinful flesh that leans us in the direction still of wanting some of those very things. We know it's wrong. We want to be set free. We don't want to continue that way. But there's still this, I find then this law. Universal principle. So, If you're feeling like I think you might be feeling and thinking what you might be feeling, it raises a big question. Brad, if this is still true, if sin still has this kind of power and can still deceive me and lead me astray, then did anything significant happen in Romans 6 or not? This is a bummer. What happened to the victory of Romans 6? What happened to all that glorious talk in Romans 6? When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. Did anything significant happen when you put your trust in Christ or not? Short answer, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. Something life-altering and significant with implications took place. Don't lose heart. The death of Christ on the cross has overthrown the rule of sin in your life and has weakened its power. And in fact, in fact, you could say it has even killed it at its root. So that it can't bear the fruit of eternal death and condemnation and separation from God in your life. Someone say hallelujah. That's significant. But it's not gone. It's not gone. Don't make that mistake. See, Paul's talking about the indwelling sin that still lingers and lurks. It doesn't rain But it remains. And so the war has been won. But there are battles to be fought. See, we tend to, because by nature we're lazy folks. By nature we're looking for that silver bullet. By nature we're looking for that pixie dust. By nature we're looking for that zone. By nature we're looking for seven keys, seven secrets, four steps. 
I don't want to struggle. I don't want to wrestle. I don't want to fight. I don't want to do battles. The Bible does not promise that all the battles have been fought. It promises that the war has been won. And you go into the battle with a confidence and a hope, with promises and a victorious risen Savior, not outside of you cheering you on, but where? Where is he for every believer? Inside of you, helping you, enabling you. But will it be automatic? Will you wake up and say, I can't do nothing but please God. I'm the best husband in the world. I'm nurturing and caring and I'm listening and oh, I'm just perfect. I'm the Mary Poppins husband. Practically perfect in every way. No. I'm going to have to choose to fight my own flesh that still wants to be selfish, that still wants to sit there, that still wants to be served instead of serving, that still wants to finish sentences, that still wants to cut people off, that still, 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 and don't look at me like it's just me. That's you. That's what he wants us to know. It won't be automatic, so it's not let go and let God. It's understand what's been done and not yet done so that you fight and do what God's called you to do. See, here's the mistake we make. So often as Christians, we spend so much energy trying to do what God hasn't called us to do that only he could do. And then we abdicate the, only, the things he's told us you must do that he won't do for us. We get all that screwed up. There are things he has done that you could never do. Break the chains of sin. Conquer sin and Satan and hell and death. Adopt you, give you a robe of righteousness, live inside of you, give you promises, give you a hope, give you direct access to his throne 24 hours a day. None of that you could have done. But he has not said, and therefore, all the battle's over. Lay down your weapons, just get up and just roll into your day with little thought, little planning, little preparation. Oh my goodness, no. It's in a different book, but Ephesians 6 tells us all about what? What is it we're supposed to put on every day? It doesn't say, get settled in your armchair of Christianity every day and prop your feet up on the footstool of Christianity and get yourself a beverage in the head of something on a platter and just kick back to the glory of God. (laughs) Armor, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, girdle of truth, feet shot with the gospel shoes, sword of the spirit, shield of the faith. Sounds like a battle to be fought to me. And we got too many Christians that don't recognize it and are looking for the pixie dust, the silver bullet, the zone. And Romans 7, 14 to 25, blows up the zone. Blows up that notion. and says there are going to be battles to be fought. But you can fight them with the confidence that what has decisively needed to be done or you would lose every battle. You would win no battles if God had not already done what God has done. You're going to lose some still, but you wouldn't win any apart from what God did first in your life. But now you can fight. Now you can fight. Now you can fight. Let me give you an illustration of what's going on now. Think about it in terms of Christ coming to the earth. All right? All the Old Testament was prophesying, looking and waiting and longing, yearning for a Messiah, for the Christ, for a Savior, for help, for hope. Rescue us. Deliver us. Help us. Christ comes, born of a virgin, laid in a manger. God takes on flesh, comes to this earth 2,000 years ago and inaugurates his kingdom, kicks off his kingdom. So read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He'll say, if the kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of God has come. John the Baptist preached, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. 
So we're not waiting on the kingdom of God, folks. It's here right now. Hebrews talks about an unshakable kingdom. It's here. It's been inaugurated. But it's not yet been consummated. We're not experiencing the fullness of his kingdom. Every right hasn't been established. Every wrong has not been made right. We're living in a day of the already. He's already done something significant. But it's not yet fully manifested, not yet fully completed. We're not experiencing the final, full consummation of his kingdom. He tells us that he's already reigning and ruling right now and has defeated the little God of this age, little g, that he's defeated the God of this age, Satan. But let me ask you, even though it tells us he has defeated the God of this age, is that little God and that enemy just sitting on his hand and just lying there saying, oh, well, I lost. Louder. No. No. Why? Because he's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a thief. And so he is still on the move. Defeated, but on the move. Still working and attacking. There's opposition in this world that remains. Satan is defeated, yet still alive and on the move. That's why 1 Peter 5 says he goes about as a roaring lion. Make this distinction. Satan is defeated. The war has been won. But vanquished is not the same as vanished. Vanquished, conquered, is not the same thing as vanished. Even in wars that are fought on this this earth, think about how many times one country surrenders to another country. It takes a while for word to get out and there'll be people on islands and other places that they're still fighting, they don't even know. Or... Yeah, it's over, but you still got little resurgence and people that are still just slipping around, still fighting, still doing what they do, even though definitively they've lost. That's our enemy, Satan. Defeated, yet still opposing and alive and moving. He's defeated, but certainly not disappeared altogether yet. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writing to the church at Corinth said, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God little g, of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. He's still in the business of blinding and deceiving and lying and destroying and stirring it up with confusion. It's only at Christ's second coming that we long for and yearn for and look for As Paul said in Titus 2, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's only at the second coming, which is very soon, my friend. It's only at the second coming that Jesus will fully and finally eradicate all wrong, remove all sin, and bind fully and finally our enemy Satan and cast him into the lake of fire. But that hasn't happened yet and until it does there are battles to be fought and the biggest battle starts with an inside it's right here it's inescapable i live with this because i still have this body of flesh to contend with second fact about your fight so number one it's inescapable you're in it you're in it you're in this fight number two the battle you're facing is an inside job The battle you're facing is an inside job. Your biggest problem is not circumstances or people around you. 
Your biggest problem is you, you. Look at it again in verse 17. He calls it sin living in me. Look at verse 21. He calls it evil that is right there with me. Verse 23 says, I see another law in my members that's warring against the law of my mind. And make sure you understand this. Unbelievers are not even in this fight. Paul's talking to Christians. Paul's talking to believers, those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, don't hear me saying the law of sin is not even at work in unbelievers. Not true. It's at work just like it is in us. But listen, apart from Jesus Christ coming into your life, apart from having your eyes opened, you don't even have an awareness of this law of sin at work in you. You don't start with you being the biggest problem. You put everything outside of you. And I know the language that Paul is using here in verses 14 to 25 has caused some to say he can't be talking about a believer. He can't be talking about a Christian. But I believe he is. And he's not talking about a baby Christian either. He's talking about a mature believer. Because listen, it's only mature believers that begin to have this awareness of just how sinful they still are. That's why I get this. This might explain some things to you. If you're here and you're a new Christian, you said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I think I'm so much worse than when I wasn't a Christian. Oh, I just feel like I'm, oh, news alert. You you just feel like, well, that wasn't completely truthful. That wasn't honest. I shouldn't have spoken to her like that. I shouldn't have finished that sentence. I should have been more patient with my son. And all of a sudden you can just think, I'm terrible. Yeah, you've always been that bad. Now you just are aware of it. Because apart from a work of grace and the Holy Spirit in your life, you live blind to the power of sin and you place your biggest problem outside of you and you live blame shifting and being the victim. Blame shifting and being the victim. Blame shifting and being the victim. It's only Christians who begin to say, oh my goodness, look at this law of sin that's still at work in me. I cannot believe how often I still have a vile thought. I still feel such hatred. I still feel such envy. I still covet so much. I still am so quickly drawn to jealousy. I still, I still, I still, that was so prideful. That was a, ah! It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. What Paul is describing here, folks, is that only the believer begins to have their eyes opened. Eyes opened. Spiritual eyes wide open now instead of blind to sin. So if you're not careful, you can start feeling worse about yourself and thinking. But it's the person who begins to draw near to God, know God, listen to God, follow God, begin to know Christ and enjoy Christ and want to become like Christ that has a longing and a desire to be holy and to please him that begins to say, here's my desire, but oh, here's still where I am. And here's what I want to do on this and here's still where I am. And oh, I don't want to do that anymore. I know God's word says, but oh, I just did it again. It's the believer. Unbelievers don't live this way, folks. Now, they can struggle sometimes about the consequences of what they're getting and think, that's, oh, let's try to fix that. And they can sometimes rein in some of their sinful behavior simply to save face and to be thought better of. But a genuine hatred for sin and an agony over it, no. My biggest problem is everybody else. My husband, my wife, my boss, my supervisor, my brother-in-law. Blame shift, victim. Blame shift, victim. 
It's believers who, by the grace of God, have their spiritual eyes wide open instead of blind to the indwelling sin that yet remains. When you begin to own your sin and see the law of sin at work in you, it's because God has opened your eyes and he's doing a work in you, a good work in you, by his grace and by his spirit. I love the way G.K. Chesterton describes our biggest problem. He was speaking in a restaurant one time. He's a British journalist. He's dead now, but hilarious. Very witty. If you ever want to read some good stuff you like to read, read Chesterton. Excellent. One of my favorite authors. But one time he was speaking in a restaurant, and he said this about our biggest problem. He said, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant right now, there's no denying that he would have great power here. But I would be the first to rise and assure him that he had absolutely no authority whatsoever in this place. That, that illustration describes the relationship of Christians to their sin now. No authority. Sin has no authority. It's not king. It's not on the throne of your heart. But does sin still have power? And can it push you around? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's not gone. So the law of sin in a believer's life is that rhino now. The only authoritative rule in the life of a Christian, a believer, is the kingdom and reign of God and Jesus Christ. But that rhino still snorts and paws the ground of your heart and lowers his head and horn and charges at you and intimidates you and seeks to bully you and push you around if you'll let him. Even though we stand up and shout to him, You have no authority in my life now. Jesus is Lord of my life. He can still intimidate you and push you around and bully you if you'll let him. See, folks, that's why in the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews, if you know anything about that book, was it written to believers or unbelievers? Those who know Christ or those who are outside of Christ? Is it an evangelistic book sharing the gospel or is it a book to Christians? Which? Christians who are suffering. And he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, let us lay aside the weight and every sin that so what? Easily ensnares us. It easily ensnares us. It easily entangles us. Question. Why does sin still so easily ensnare us? Because the rhino still lives. You don't just need temptation from the outside. You wake up every day with the rhino of indwelling sin still snorting, pawing the ground of your heart, lowering his head and his horn. And you better be aware of this. You better know that it's still alive. I'm going to have to do battle. I'm going to have to take every thought captive. I'm going I'm, I'm to need to get in a small group and get close to other believers who can hold on to me and help me and encourage me. I'm going to have to read God's word and renew my mind. I'm going to have to have time in prayer before I start my day. You know what? I don't have a Bible verse for this. But Christians who decide they're going to read their Bible and pray at the end of the day, most of the time you end up laying your head on the pillow and just saying, oh, sorry, God, sorry, sorry, so sorry. That was awful, that was awful. I I don't really want to spend my prayer time like that. Pray at the beginning of your day and say, oh, God, help me. I got a meeting today and I hate her, (laughs) but I don't want to keep hating her. Would you help me? Oh, God, I've got this, that, and the other, and I'm feeling scared and anxious and overwhelmed. Would you calm my heart? Would you help me to do right now? He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let God know your request. 
Do it now, God. Help me. The other morning, I knew I had two, three meetings that were very difficult, that were really messy. I said, Lord, I was here at 7th. I said, Lord, oh, Lord, Psalm 141.3, set a guard over my lips. Keep watch over the door of my mouth. Let me say what you want me to say in this meeting and not say what I shouldn't say. Don't let it be Brad Bingley just running his mouth. Help me. Pray in the morning. Ask for help. Read God's word in the morning. Renew your mind. Get closer to other believers and ask for help and say, let's do this together. Bear this load with me. Folks, reading your Bible, praying, getting in a small group, memorizing scripture, it's not legalism. It's just insanity not to do any of those things when you understand the war's been won, but there's battles to be fought. I pray, I read my Bible, I memorize scripture so that it's right on the tip of my brain and my heart so that right in those moments today, boom, he'll bring his word to my mind. Boom, he'll bring his principles to my mind. Boom, he'll bring the complete opposite of what I'm about to say or do and he helps me. But you better wake up every day knowing there are battles to be fought. The rhino still paws the ground of my heart, still snorts and will lower its horn And I can end up saying, doing, being things that I don't want to be anymore, but it will not just happen. You will not just become more like Jesus. Say, I've been a Christian 25 years. You can be a pathetic, immature, baby Christian 25 years, and you can see someone who comes to know Christ, and they've only been a Christian 18 months, way ahead of that person. How long you have been saved has little or nothing to do with how mature you are. It's your mindset of understanding how wretched you still are and going to war, going to battle and drawing on the resources that God has given us to do this battle so that you grow and so that you begin to win more than lose. But it's going to be work. It's going to be hard. It's going to take effort. You're going to have to wake up ready and thinking this way. See, think about it. It's not, is it not true? See if this is true in your life. Is it not true that almost every time you decide to obey God's command and do it? I'm not talking about you've thought about it, you've mused on it. You say, that's a wonderful truth. Satan will leave you alone. He'll just say, oh, muse on it all you want. Delight in it all you want. Toss it around in your mind all you want. You know what he hates? And you know when you'll sense the resistance? You know when the rhino will begin to snort in your own flesh and coming against you? When you decide to do it. Hello. That's why James 1 says, do not be hearers of the word only, deceiving yourself. Be what? Be what with the word? Doers. Doers. It's, it's right in that moment when you decide to do what God says, and it's radically different than what your flesh wants, and radically different than what you would have thought, and radically different than what's logically and makes sense as a human being. And you say, you know what? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to do it. Woo! Listen for the snort. Get ready for the rhino to paw and begin to charge you because that's where you'll get the resistance. Let me give you a couple examples. Here's what I'm talking about. You might, you might be at a point where you've got a mother who's dying of, 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 of cancer. Awful. You're watching an awful, painful, sad, sorrowful exit out of this life. This is one of the hardest things to watch. A loved one wither away and be eaten up by cancer. Or it's a best friend, or you fill in the blank, whatever it is. And you know the sovereignty of God. You've been in this church a while. You know the promises. You know the truth. You know the scripture. But listen to me. It's one thing to know it. And it's another thing to apply it in these kind of situations where you say, yeah, but. Oh, yeah, but. Oh, but. But you 
You do battle with your own flesh and you take the truths you know and you are deciding that you're gonna trust God that he's good and wise even in the face of this, even without all your questions answered. Mark my words, right then is when the rhino snorts. Right then is when indwelling sin will slide up next to you and whisper, if God was really good, he wouldn't hurt you like this. You can't ever trust him again. Your life will never be the same. This is way too hard, way too hurtful, way too much. In fact, why don't you just throw in the towel on Christianity altogether? That's the rhino talking. That's indwelling. See, you say, I'm a Christian. Why do I even have these thoughts? Hello, I'm giving you the answer. The reason you still have these kind of thoughts, these things, I don't know what's going on with me. Indwelling sin. The rhino still lives. How about this? You're ready to obey God regarding helping a brother or sister in the Lord with a financial need. You already give to the church. You already give to maybe some missionaries. But you come, become aware of someone in your small group or just someone in our church or a Christian friend at work or in the neighborhood that's out of work. You decide you're going to make a house payment. Or you decide you're going to cover some medical bills. Or you decide you're going to give a gift for Christmas to help them buy gifts for the kids because he's been out of work or she's been out of work for over a year now. Mark my words. You can think about that. It can pop into your head on the treadmill at the gym. It can pop into your head dozens of times. The moment you begin to act on it and you sit down on Saturday with your budget, and I hope you have a budget, and you say, now how am I going to do this? Snort. The rhino of indwelling sin is going to say, hang on a minute. Whoa, 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 pen in hand. Put that down. What are you thinking? Are you crazy? Do you understand the times we're living in? You could lose your job six months from now. You don't know what's coming ahead. You don't know what. You got kids that are going to need braces. You got kids that are going to go to college. You got, you got, you got, you got, you got. And here's the other thing about indwelling sin. Because almost if it just said to us, don't ever give money away. We'd say, that doesn't sound right. You know what it always says? Just don't do it yet. You might need that. You got bills you don't know about, maybe. And, hey, what about those new golf clubs you've been wanting? What about that new bedroom set? You're never going to get this stuff giving away money like that. You work hard. You need to get some of the things you've been wanting first and then start living that way. Am I the only one? I mean, when I talk about giving away 21% of our money, please don't hear me saying, and I never give a thought to it, like, Oh, I do. It'll pop into my mind who I ought to help next, and it'll rumble around. It'll pop into my mind a few days later or a week later, and then when I'm working on the budget on Friday or Saturday, I think, I'm going to do that. It's like, all of a sudden, where did this come from? There's all this resistance. There's all this, oh, you, you still got two more kids in home. You, you're going to have four in college next year. I'm not making this up. You're gonna, you still got a daughter whose teeth are going all kinds of directions, and they said she's yet to go into braces, and our insurance doesn't pay for braces. That's 5000 Boom, right off the top. Out of your pocket, big guy. What are you thinking? That's what I'm talking about. Right then. The rhino will resist you at the point of actual obedience. When you get ready to do what God says. But see, if you could begin to recognize that there is a rhino 
half the battle is won. Because you know what? I know what that is. I know what that is. I know what that is. That's the sin that remains. And I'm going to turn to that rhino and say, you have no authority in my life. You got some power, and this is pretty scary, and you've intimidated me some. But I'm going to do what I believe the Spirit of God is leading me to do right now. Fact number three. So number one, this battle is inescapable. You don't have to sign up for it. You can't opt out. Number two, it's an inside job. Number three, the battle we're in never stops in this life. It just never stops in this life. You're going to have to be ready to do battle again and again and again and again and again and again. And see, unbelievers don't experience this because here's the deal. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Unbelievers don't experience the, what I'm talking about, this agony and this wrestling. Because by and large, they're just being carried along and swept along and going with the flow of indwelling sin. They don't resist. It's only when you step, say if you're in a boat, canoe, or raft. You know, they always warn you once you get, you get ready to white water raft, they'll say, don't step out of the boat. You don't think the water's moving that, that fast. You don't think so, but you step out and it's like, bam, it just kicks your feet out from under. It's only when you step out of the boat and try to stand that you have any idea of the power and the struggle. The struggle only begins when you choose to stand and obey. If you just go with the flow and you're just swept along, you could be sitting here today saying, I don't know what you're talking about, Brad. I don't have the kind of struggles that you're talking about. I don't have this agony. Guess what? Not good. You're either not a Christian or you are a Christian that's just being carried with the current, carried with the current, and the places you're ending up are not good. You will not end up in a holy place more like Christ, just going with the current of indwelling sin, just going with the flow. Never. One of the things I love to do is, is whitewater raft or canoe outdoors. So banish forever the thinking that Brad's against the outdoors. There's that notion that's just trickling around there. I hate camping. That's not the same thing. I don't want to sleep on the ground. I'll sit by a fire. I'll do the marshmallows. I'll look at the stars. I'll play my guitar. And then I want to walk into a place that has a real bed and sleep on it. And I want to shower with real hot water and eat real food that was cooked on a real stove. That's all. I love the outdoors. I love the outdoors. I just don't want to sleep on the ground and wipe with a leaf and all that kind of stuff. It's like, no. No, I mean, our ancestors worked for decades to get us to this point, not having to wipe with a leaf, not having to sleep on the ground. Why would you regress all of a sudden? It's like, let's go do that. No, let's not. But let's go outside. So I'm all for whitewater rafting and canoeing. Love it. I grew up in Tennessee, so I grew up watching my dad canoe all the time with a group of friends. And the Hiawassee River is the river we know the best. It's right there near Chattanooga. I've been down that river so many times. And there is a place on that river. The reason this is dear to my heart now, there's, you know, these, these rivers, when you raft them or canoe, they'll give you a, a map that shows you the treacherous and dangerous spots. There's a place on the Hiawassee that's named after us, the Big Knees, Big Knees Rock. Kid you not, Google it, Hiawassee River, Big Knees Rock. It's us, talking about us. Named after my dad 45 years ago. When I was just five or six, my dad and his friends would do this almost every Saturday. He's an expert canoeist. I grew up with two canoes hanging upside down in the garage. This is just part of our lives. We canoe. We're the big knees and we canoe. So my dad knew what he was doing. And he had, he had navigated around this point many times. But it was one of those spots where there's a huge rock and the current is sucking you straight into that rock. It doesn't look that, like that big of a deal. 
But you've got to start paddling hard and sooner than you would think you need to, to go left or right. And one Saturday, he did not make it. It's, it grabbed him, sucked him sideways, slammed him into that rock, and wrapped his canoe around that rock like a horseshoe. Just crushed it. He and his friends with ropes and group effort could not get it off that rock. They had to leave it. Leave it. There's a damn fed river, so the next day when the water was down, they could go back, but all they could do was just pull the crushed, crumpled canoe off and toss it. But just a couple summers ago, I was in an outpost getting some gear, getting ready to do the river, and there were some T-shirts on a rack hanging there, and I went over and grabbed one of them. On the back was a map, and the place on there said, Big Knees Rock. I didn't know it was called that. I was so excited. I go up to the cash register. I'm like, look at that. That's us. We're the Big Knees. We are the Big Knees. That's named after my dad 45 years ago. I'm just going on and on and on. He had a big beard, and he's just standing there chewing. I just kept talking. I thought, I don't think he's hearing me. This is us. Big knees, that's named after us. He did not care. But I was very excited. And here's why I tell you this, folks. Indwelling sin. If you've been going with the current of that, depending on how long you lived before God saved you, you're going to have to paddle hard and paddle sooner than you think to need to in some instances to avoid sin. It will not be automatic. You will never automatically become holy and godly without a fight. Without a fight. Because I'll tell you something else I love. Right here in our area in the summertime, one of my favorite dates with Vicky is to go to the Florence Aquatic Park and just get in one of those big yellow inner tubes and do the lazy river. You don't have to paddle. You don't go upstream, certainly not. You just go with the flow. We laugh, we talk, we just hang out, and it just carries us along. We got too many Christians living an inner tube Christianity that does not exist. You better get a paddle in your hand. And that paddle is the word of God. Read it. Memorize it. Pray in the morning. Get in a small group and get close to other Christians and get ready to fight and paddle hard or you're going to be headed for disaster and destruction. It will not automatically happen. We need to have a mindset of the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We need more Christians that understand it's a fight. I need to finish. Too many people start stuff. Who cares if you start? God's looking for those that finish, finish, finish. I want to be one of those that finishes well. Not the pastor you read about that, oh, remember Brad Bigney? He planted a church. God did some good stuff, but, and the voice trails off. It could happen. It could happen if I begin to kick back and try to operate on inner tube Christianity. It's a canoe, folks. It's a paddle. It's a battle. The war's been won, but there are battles to be fought. Father, help us. Help us to understand what you've done and what you've not done. Help us to delight in and rejoice in all you've done that we could never have accomplished in our own strength. But in light of that, And standing on that to begin to fight and to say, you have no authority in my life. You have no authority in my life, sin. And to begin to step out and do what God says, knowing that we're going to get resistance. And that resistance is going to be largely from inside before the outside forces even begin to engage and kick in. Help us to be informed Christians, wise to the battle, that we might finish Well, oh Lord, we need you.
We pray in Jesus' name, amen.